Violence is very, very prevalent uh, in our society. But we must remember that there is no excuse to violence. I would advise women that, no, ensure that all the terms are complied with before you get your divorce. Section 498A, domestic violence, is a criminal offence. Giving and taking dowry is a criminal offence. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ilm. I'm Aisha Alim and The Ilm is a podcast that celebrates knowledge. Because the more we know about people, places, issues, we're richer for it. And why is this important? How are we richer for it? Because the more information we have, we're less fearful of what's different from us. Knowledge helps us learn what makes people different and distinct. But also so much like us and the people we love. So in episode two, when we talked about women and work, I mentioned that I wanted to create a handy resource of useful information on topics that I often find people struggling with. This episode is part of that series, where today I'm talking to Veena Gowda, a women's rights lawyer in the Bombay High Court, about parts of Indian law that many women I know have had to access, either directly or with a family member or friend. Veena has explained some of the important stuff about filing for a divorce in India, what to do in the case of domestic violence, dowry harassment, sexual harassment at the workplace, and how to file an FIR. She's also commented on the triple talaq verdict passed by the Supreme Court of India in 2017, which declared the practice of instant divorce, practiced in some Muslim communities, as unconstitutional. That's a lot of complicated terms, but hopefully at the end of this episode, you'll feel differently. This is episode 9, Women and the Law. I'm Aisha Alim. Welcome to the Ilm. Hi, Veena. Thanks so much for speaking with me. If you could introduce yourself, please. I'm Veena Gowda. I'm a lawyer. I'm a women's rights lawyer. Uh, meaning that uh, I represent women in court. This was actually the last question that I had, but I think I'm going to start with it. Why did you focus your practice on women's rights? Was that just something that happened or that you actively chose? No, I identify myself as a feminist lawyer. So I did law in order to work on uh, women's issue. And I think every time there is some kind of a dispute, I mean, or um, any kind of violence against uh, women, and when she has to access the law, I mean, the system is not really um, of friendly to women. It's always antagonistic uh, uh, to women. So I do think women require additional support. And when it comes to, for example, uh, violence within the family, invariably, uh, you know, the, the woman will be economically weaker. So therefore, I think we, I felt the need that, uh, you know, you, you need a certain set of lawyers that would uh, support uh, women. So as to make the system accessible to them. So exactly for the reasons you mentioned, I wanted to ask you a few questions related to women and the law in India in particular. Um, we'll start off with um, divorce. Uh, 
it seems like such a common phenomenon. A lot of women do get divorced, and if it's not them, then it's a loved one or a friend that they are likely to know at some point during their life who is going to get divorced. Um, what does a woman need to know, or what does she need to insist on when she's filing for divorce? See, in the sense, first of all, we need to understand that in India, law uh, that governs marriage and divorce, each community or each religious community has their separate laws. So the law that you marry under also determines the law under which you will get a divorce. So for example, if you marry under the Hindu law, then obviously the Hindu Marriage Act will determine how the divorce uh, happens. If you've married under the Muslim law, then the Islamic law will determine how uh, the divorce will uh, happen. But we also have an option which is called the Special Marriage Act, which is, the, uh, which is what we call optional civil code you know, optional, optional uniform civil code. So if anybody says that, no, I don't want to be governed by any religious laws, or if there are two people marrying, um, uh, who belong to different religions uh, marrying, then it's the safest to marry under uh, the Special Marriage Act. The other is what is called a fault ground divorce. So if one of the parties is not agreeable for a divorce and one of them wants it, then you, have to, you can move the court. So cruelty, desertion, adultery, all of this is faults false in the person that, so if, there, if the woman is facing physical violence, mental violence, if the man is not uh, taking care of the family, giving money, sexual violence, uh, etc., can be grounds for uh, divorce. And otherwise, if there's a, been a desertion for a period of two years, he's just left you and gone and he's not come back, that is also a ground for uh, divorce, adultery. So these are like common uh, grounds of uh, divorce. Because in India, you don't have this concept of irretrievable breakdown of marriage, which is there in certain Western countries, where you don't really have to give a reason uh, for the divorce uh, itself. So if a woman's filing for divorce, if she has to start right at the beginning, who, who is the first person that she would get in touch with? See, first of all, uh, it depends on what the grounds of divorce are. Okay? If there is physical violence, if there's a lot of mental violence, etc., then one of the first things a woman should do, you know, I mean, uh, is maybe file some kind of police complaint or a... Um, see, even in police complaints, there are two kinds. One is the NC, which is the non-cognizable complaint, and one is the FIR, which is a first information report. So FIR will lead to a criminal investigation and, uh, you know, trial and punishment, etc. A non-cognizable offence is literally merely going and informing the police that, okay, this is what is happening, so in case of need, I may reach out to you. So therefore, one, one of the first things is, yes, if there is violence, okay, the first thing that the woman needs to do is to protect herself and how does she do it. So one is, of course, inform your family, two if, or inform the police. Whenever we talk of uh, divorce, especially in urban scenarios with younger people, uh, one envisages or one imagines a mutual consent divorce, okay? But violence is very, very prevalent uh, in our society and that's why I feel the need to kind of speak about that uh, first. If there is no violence in the marriage, but otherwise you're looking at it because uh, of desertion or you want to mutually kind of uh, separate, then of course one of the first people you will contact is a lawyer. Lawyers are various kinds. Mostly lawyers are general practitioners. 
it's always better and best to go to a, go to a matrimonial lawyer or at least who has a primary litigation in matrimonial uh, law what are the average expenses she's looking at because again this seems to vary oh you need to pay before you need to pay later you need to pay in the middle you need to pay people at the court so wh what are the expenses she's looking at see one is you don't need to pay anyone at the court okay there's only something called court fees which is very very um, nominal it's not something uh, that should stop a woman from uh, approaching the court but otherwise you have see first of all there's something called legal aid okay every woman is entitled to legal aid by the state so if she can't afford anything okay if she can't afford to pay a lawyer then she can approach the legal aid uh, authority okay so they will provide her a lawyer however the quality of these lawyers may not be good some of them are good some of them are not good so secondly is that then you have a lot of organizations or groups like ours you know which provide um sometimes pro bono or what we call low bono give okay, that that charges as per the capacity of the woman to uh, pay so there's nothing very fixed it even depends from city to city bangalore may not be as expensive as bombay bombay may not be as expensive as um, as delhi and sometimes clients ask okay tell me some lawyers work on a fixed price, uh, uh, rate some will say that okay i will take so much for uh, the initial stage and take an additional amount for the trial stage because also what happens unless it's a mutual consent divorce the you don't know how long the uh, process could be sometimes you may file a petition on the ground of cruelty uh, the other side might come and just settle the matter okay so then it won't take you too long otherwise they may litigate it so it can take you anything from 3 years to 15 years but it's very very difficult to say what the cost would be so one is that there is no cost in court many lawyers will tell you that i will pay the lawyer or i have to pay the clerk or pun um, you know i mean everybody is supposed to follow the process and procedure okay now if you're willing to contribute to that corrupt system then no one can say uh, do anything about it however the only cost that you will actually face would be the lawyer's fees Okay, because otherwise, in court, unlike if you're doing a property case, you will have to pay some very high court fees. But for matrimonial litigation, you don't have that kind of court fees. You mentioned that depending on the kind of divorce you're filing, the time period varies as well. But if we were to take the example of mutual consent, for example, how long does that take on average? Mutual consent has to and ought not to take more than six months. Okay, from the date of filing till the decree. actually has to take you exactly 6 months now how how it happens is that okay you file a petition you may have certain terms that need to be complied with for example if the husband has to pay certain amount of money alimony etc whatever that it is the court's no a house has to be sold money has to be divided the court normally prefers that all the terms are complied with so it depends on how your terms are written if you say that before the passing of decree all the terms will be complied with then the court will obviously look at it and see but a lot of times sometimes they say that okay the, to sell the house the market is not very good okay so they will say that post decree after 6 months we will uh, uh, sell the house i mean i would advise women that no ensure that all the terms are complied with before you get your divorce so the law says that 
from the date of filing six months later not before uh, six months the court now has created an exception okay they say you don't have to wait for that period of six months but that's not in all cases for example if you've litigated for a very long time and then you convert that petition into a mutual consent because the courts are still not keen on reducing that period of uh, six months because they feel that party should Give, be given a little bit of time, a to comply with the terms and b also to reconsider their decision if they so desire. So what happens is that the the petition, the decree is six months, or the petition is can be kept pending from the date of filing for a period of eighteen months, so that the compliance can be done in that further uh, if it's not done. But it's valid only for 18 months. So mutual consent can't be dragged on for uh, too long and should not uh, be. She has a right to maintenance and alimony, okay, which is a monthly maintenance or a lump sum amount that the court uh, gives. Court rarely give lump sum uh, amounts, but it, the law envisages uh, that. In addition to that, she has a right to her stridan. Okay, stridan would be any jewelry that is given to her okay at the time of marriage and post marriage from whoever it can be it can be from the husband's side from her side or from friends whatever anything that is given to the woman um, then becomes her property and she has a right to the, uh, right to that even at the time of uh, divorce so for example if it is in the joint locker of her and the mother in law or it's in the joint locker with her and her husband then she has a right to that um, Stridan. So she has a right to maintenance, she has a right to stridan. In addition to that, she also has a right of residence. Okay, we, In India, we don't have a concept of matrimonial property, which all of us must now fight for and uh, struggle for and ask the government to pass a law specifically on matrimonial property. But we don't have a law on matrimonial property. The only right that the woman has is a right of residing in the house. Okay, so therefore, whoever the house can be owned by, the husband, mother-in-law, father-in-law, whoever that it might be, she has a right to reside in that house. So no one can throw her out of uh, the house as and when they please. Under the Domestic Violence Act, also a shared household has been defined. Okay, It is a house where the woman has resided in a domestic relationship. And if your stridan, etc., has been taken away uh, by uh, the husband or his family, then you also file what is called a 406. She has a right to maintenance, stridan, right of residence in the house, as well as custody of the child. But however, what happens, unlike maintenance or uh, the right of residence or stridan, child not being a property, okay, it really, uh, many, there are very many variables in it. So if the child is very young, less than four or five, primarily the mother is given custody till the age of maybe six or seven. But su subsequently what happens is that the wishes of the child is also asked as to where the child wants to stay. And normally what happens with children is that whoever they're staying with, they will say that we want to continue uh, to stay with them. But if whoever, so there will be one custodial parent if, it, if the parents are separated. So it could be the, be the mother or the father. So the non-custodial parent always has a right to access, okay, or visitation uh, to the child. So in the petition, if the, if the child is not with you, then you also have to ask for custody as well as visitation. Visitation could be regular visitation, which is the weekly visitation, which could be uh, vacation uh, access, you know, where you 
uh, share the uh, access uh, vacation half or whatever that it uh, that it could be birthday access special day access etc so all this will be uh, are, is also part of the whole issue of uh, custody like i said we don't have the concept of matrimonial property in india okay so one is that uh, if the property is in the joint names of the parties irrespective of who has paid how much okay unlike in other um, in other general laws it may go on contribution to the property in matrimonial law there are a couple of uh, judgments which say that it will be divided equally 50 50% uh, if the property is not in the joint names if it is either in the uh, individual name of the wife or the husband then the other does not have a right to it okay the right to the property of your spouse comes only upon the death of the spouse otherwise there is no uh, right that either of the person has so then the question of claiming it also to that extent does not arise but sometimes what happens is that the property is purchased in the husband's name but the wife may have paid for it or contributed in uh, some way you can maybe possibly make a claim but it's quite impossible to uh, then recover that what happens if the spouse doesn't comply for example if there are terms that are decided whether for alimony maintenance child support uh, child custody and the other the husband in this case maybe violates that or he he creates a problem after the decree has been passed then what happens see uh, any order of a court is an executable order okay courts are supposed to pass only executable orders execution means that it can be implemented it can, it has to, it has to be be able to be followed so for example a lot of times uh, actually if you go to the family courts and see i think about 50% of the cases will be cases where women have come to court asking for implementation of the uh, of the order so the courts pass orders of maintenance alimony etc but the husband might not pay so then the woman will have to go to court and ask for file for uh, what is called recovery proceedings okay so in the recovery proceedings what happens is that the husband will first be sent a notice so then if he still does not comply uh, with the order then uh, his movable property can be attached okay then otherwise then uh, if he doesn't comply with uh, that too for example if he's a salaried person then you can even attach the salary of the person and say that okay give directions to his office saying every month x amount of uh, um, amount must come to the uh, woman and ultimately if he doesn't uh, comply at all he can also be arrested for non compliance because it would be contempt of the order of the court and if we can just talk a little bit about what the long term consequences are of uh, getting a divorce because i know a lot of women have questions about how will this affect remarriage so yes if the papers are clear and it says that there's going to be no uh, you know it's not going to be contested by either party uh, to of whoever they choose to marry in the future uh, there's that but is there any other impact on remarriage changing of your name if you've taken your husband's name and you want to go back to your maiden name applying for a passport for example um there are horror stories of women being harassed at the passport office so what are some of the long term consequences first of all a woman need not change her name after marriage there is no law in the country that expects women to change their name okay either the first name or the surname you can you can continue to retain it 
when you have your child you can choose that the child will carry your name and not that of the husband or can com make make a combination uh, of both some people even combine the two names and create another surname so name you need not change at all but post divorce the consequences one is that if it's a mutual consent divorce then you can marry soon thereafter because there is no concept of appeal okay you don't go to a higher court but if it is a divorce on the on a fault ground of cruelty desertion adultery etc then you will have to wait for the appeal period okay which is anywhere between 30 days to 90 uh, days only then subsequently you can get uh, married unless the other person has filed an appeal otherwise you can't remarry till the appeal period is over another important thing is that many of us at times are in a great hurry to get a divorce okay we must understand that there is no shortcut to a court decree many lawyers may tell you or people might tell you that no we'll do a divorce deed you know and just put it on stamp paper and uh, both of us will sign that is not a valid divorce so you will have to get a divorce from a district court or a family court within the, the area you living or where you got married or where one of the parties is uh, living at okay so once the divorce uh, uh, happens on remarriage like i said you just have to wait for the appeal period and uh, otherwise so uh if, for example then if you want to go back to your uh, surname your maiden surname then you can do that if you want to continue to retain your um uh, married name i mean sometimes these days people are putting clauses in the divorce proceedings that she will change her surname and not continue to bear her there is no law that asks you to do either way so it's completely up to you like for example when there is a long period of uh, marriage you know uh, you would have done certain work as a writer or as an actor or whatever it could be and that name your name along with the surname has a certain goodwill has a certain reputation so for you to ex uh, suddenly to be expected to change that uh, surname will be extremely unfair so the law does not expect you to do uh, any of that sort it's completely um, up to you then about the passport if you want to change your status then you will have to go give them a copy of the decree okay so uh, it will have to be a certified copy of the decree yeah. so once you give that certified copy the passport authorities are supposed to automatically then change your name and change the status you also mentioned that if there's uh, violence in the marriage um, one of the first things that a woman should do is of course make sure that she's safe and inform um uh, friends and family and that she can file two different kinds of complaints um with the police um but i'm curious again there's a lot of ambiguity around this what are the long term consequences because some people say oh the moment you file something like that if the police is called in while a couple is having a fight at home for example they're not going to ask many questions other than ask the woman did he hit you and if the woman says yes he will be locked up almost immediately so how does it work and what are the long term consequences because it seems like a lot of women shy away from filing these complaints because they're so worried about what that entails many women in a sense uh, worry about filing uh, a case of 498 unlike what people think it's not it doesn't it's not the first thing that women do okay because the consequences they feel that once you've taken that criminal step uh, criminal law step then the uh, marriage may not survive it section 498 domestic violence is a criminal offense 
it is a cognizable offence, which means the police can uh, take cognizance of it and immediately act upon it. It's a non-bailable uh, offence, which means that the police can't grant bail because of this whole hype of misuse of 498A, which is not substantiated by uh, statistics at all. Okay, the courts have also become extremely cautious, and the Supreme Court recently also passed a judgment saying that in cases of 498A, immediately no uh, a criminal complaint or arrest will be made. There should be a preliminary inquiry and only if they feel that there is a substance to it, then an FIR will be filed and the person will be uh, arrested. But we must remember that there is no excuse to violence. Somewhere we have also taught our women that, uh, that, that you know that uh, if someone does something to you, then it must be your fault. Okay, you're sexually harassed on the road because of what you're wearing. Somebody is shouting at you because you've done something wrong. The husband is beating you because maybe you didn't uh, do the right thing. So there's always a sense of guilt in uh, women that also kind of uh, stops them from challenging that uh, violence. Going one step further, even if the woman is having an adulterous relationship, then you have remedies in law for the man. You go file a divorce, you file whatever that it is required. But that does not mean that you can hit the woman or that there can be any kind of physical uh, violence. Women may find it even a little bit easier to talk about, uh, uh, you know, they find it very easy to maybe talk about that he doesn't give me money or he's having an affair. However, especially for educated women, it's very difficult for them to talk about physical violence because they can't seem to admit to anybody saying, I am being violated in this manner. Much more tougher than that to talk about is sexual violence. Okay, because we suddenly feel that, you know, especially if it's a love marriage or if it's a marriage where parents have saved, put in a lot of money, the pressure on women to work out on that marriage is much more. So therefore what happens is that women are extremely hesitant to file a, a criminal uh, case. The reason why 498A was brought in, because we have other sections in criminal law which deal with assault, which deal with, you know, one, one person beating the other person. But somehow, if you go and tell the police that a stranger beat me or I was beaten up by somebody on, on the street, they will file a complaint. But when a woman comes and says that I have violence within the family or the husband is uh, beating me, they don't necessarily uh, file the complaint because they will tell you that this is your personal matter and this is your family matter. So therefore, the need for the law to recognize a specific offense of domestic violence and a 490 which when there is physical violence, when, when there is a threat to the woman's life, she ought to actually use it. Because only then I feel that people will also take it more seriously. But we have to also understand that the minute you file an FIR, what women sometimes want is that even before the trial that he's in jail forever and ever. Okay, that does not necessarily happen. Because uh, everybody has a fundamental right to life. Okay, and that can be taken away only after a due process is followed. And bail is a right to the person. And the person will be kept uh, in judicial custody or police custody only till the investigation is over. Okay, once the investigation is done, everybody's statement is uh, recorded, one. Two is that if the police don't feel that this offence is going to be committed again or there is no threat to that offence, then the bail will be granted by the court. Now the court will then... Uh, refuse bail only on certain grounds. One is investigation is not complete. Two is that uh, the, there is a, a possibility of a recurrence of that offence 
or three is that the person may tamper with uh, witnesses, four is that they may threaten witnesses, etc. So even if a bail is granted, if at any point in time any of these conditions exist, the woman can approach for the cancellation of the bail. But however, we must remember that bail is a right and you can't expect that person to be in jail forever. So a lot of time they'll come and say, oh, I filed this complaint, what's the point? He's out in three days. But the trial has to be completed for him to go to jail. Giving and taking dowry is a criminal offence. And dowry has been uh, said to be a criminal offence for a very, very long time, but somehow the practice still exists. And the nature by which people are demanding dowry is also changing. You know, it's not now directly like give us X amount of money, etc. They'll ask you to invest in certain things or they will say that, okay, give this in the woman's name and subsequently they will um, uh, transfer it. I think the question is, whatever the law is and uh, whoever is or is, or is not liable, I think it's for us women, one. One thing we need to understand, I think, is that somewhere in India or the world over, Marriage is seen as something, is seen as a natural course of things, okay? Like someone is born and someone dies. Like that, someone is born, someone marries, someone has a child and then dies. There is no alternative to marriage. That a woman's life or a man's life is incomplete without marriage. So there is so much of a premium on marriage that people will marry anybody, you know, especially as you're growing older. I mean, forget parental pressure, even among us friends itself, you know, I mean, I'm what, 46 years of age, even now people come and ask me, oh, haven't you met someone, don't you want to get married? That somewhere that you feel that not being married, you know, is a sense of a failure in your personal uh, life. I think we need to change that. Once we need, once we change that, then automatically there will not be a need for you to give or take uh, dowry, okay? The minute someone asks you, even if it is a question of where and how the marriage should be performed, I think we must all have our ears perked up and say that, I re do I really want to get into this, you know? Because, I mean, who uh, spends for the wedding? I mean, if someone comes and tells you that, no, no, in our tradition, only the woman's f uh, family spends money, then, okay, if you want to follow that tradition, then the woman's fam family will decide how and where and when it uh, happens. The minute someone says, no, we want it in an X kind of hotel with certain uh, uh, expenses, then I think we should all be very worried about uh, uh, about that kind of a relationship. There was, There is also a, a, a very, to me, a very poignant experience that uh, has happened in my own practice where a man, uh, where an old father came and told me that, you know, madam, my daughter has committed suicide, but I don't think it is suicide. She has been killed. And I said, uh, for dowry. I said, uh, I mean, what do you mean? So he said, you know, they asked, they used to ask for money. I gave her 50,000 once. I gave her another 50,000 later. And I just could not give any more. And I think they have killed her uh, for that reason. So I said, but how do we then prove it? Okay, because now under 304B, uh, any woman who dies within one seven years of marriage, and if it is an unnatural uh, death and there has been some kind of a dowry demand, then it will be presumed to be what is called a dowry death. Okay, So therefore what happened, so then I asked him, I said, how do we prove there was dowry demand? So he said, no, she used to write letters to me. And I have saved these letters very carefully, and they're in my possession. So my question to him would have been, 
and uh, you know and i wanted to ask him is that you thought that you could keep your i mean you thought enough to keep your the letters written by her so safely but you did not think that you should you need to safeguard your daughter you know that the minute that there is a dowry demand if the parents say come back we're not going to give you any more then i don't think the issue of uh, dowry death or dowry violence will happen it, it it kind of still prevails in society because we also still be, be, believe that when women get married what is that thing that uska doli hi jayegi aur atti hi wapas aayegi is still somewhere the belief uh, in our country forget among the parents but women themselves women themselves feel that once i've gotten married and once i've had a sexual relationship with somebody now this is the only man that i am tied to for not just one life but seven lifetimes you know so all that has to kind of uh, uh, change sexual harassment is also a criminal offense so therefore if there is a sexual harassment at workplace it's up to the woman whether she chooses to file a criminal complaint or whether she approaches within the office or she does both of it okay uh, because it also kind of depends on the gravity of uh, uh, the complaint itself and the woman will have to go through both the processes so it's completely up to her go, uh, approaching the office does not then uh, prevent her from going to the police or the other way round okay and the both the processes are different because in under the um, sexual harassment law where she files a complaint with the internal committee of the company then that com- that committee can merely decide whether how he will be punished the punishment could be a written apology a censure or uh, um, you know not giving him a promotion not giving an increment which could also be up to a termination depending on the gravity because the uh, the offense and there must be a proportionality between the of, uh, between the crime and the punishment or the offense and the punishment but the criminal law the focus is very different the criminal law then the focus will be of punishment or of jail one is that we must understand that uh, the law has changed post 2013 and now sexual harassment anywhere okay is a criminal offense too stalking voyeurism uh, sexual harassment um, acid attack etc have all been made uh, specific uh, criminal offenses but sexual harassment at workplace has been um, the law since 1997 from the vishaka guidelines to the vishaka judgment but i think no one really took it very uh, seriously when the law was uh, passed so now it's only in 2013 that the act has come into existence i don't think even then many companies took it very seriously i think now that the me too uh, happened that everybody is waking up and uh, uh, deciding that oh, we better um, set up uh, internal committees now what the law speaks about is sexual harassment of women at workplace prevention prohibition and redressal so every employer must not only redress a complaint of sexual harassment if it comes up but also must do things to prevent and prohibit it which means that you clearly tell all your employees that we have zero tolerance to sexual harassment at a workplace so therefore the employer must also then set up what is called an internal committee any organization that has more than 10 people okay must constitute an internal committee if any office space does not have an internal committee at every district level the law also says that you must have a local complaints committee so therefore if you can't uh, access an internal committee there then you can always go to the local uh, complaints uh, committee 
So if a woman faces uh, sexual harassment, one of the first things that she must do is write a, give a written complaint to the internal uh, committee. If there is no uh, internal committee, then she must immediately approach her employer or her HR and say that, do we have an internal committee or set up an internal committee? The question that I really want to ask, how is an FIR filed? What is useful to know before filing one? And what is important to know after filing one? See, an FIR is a first information report. Okay, so whenever there is an offence that has been committed, that is a cognizable uh, uh, offence like um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, uh, domestic violence, uh, etc., then you can go to the police and ask them to file a first information uh, report. You can either give, an, uh, give a written complaint, okay, which then they will convert into an FIR, they will record your uh, statement uh, too. And uh, once that is done, depending on um, uh, whether it is bailable, non-bailable, whatever, then the, uh, then whoever you filed a complaint against, the police will uh, approach uh, the person. If it allows for an immediate arrest, then they will be arrested. Like I said, in the case of 498, possibly now there is no immediate arrest. Okay, because they say that there has to be some kind of a preliminary inquiry uh, uh, that is uh, done. So what happens uh, when an FIR is filed or when the criminal proceedings are uh, initiated? The slight difficulty in that is that once you file a criminal complaint, it becomes the, uh, the state against the person whom you have filed a criminal complaint. Actually, then automatically the system must fall in place. Okay, the investigation is done by the police. Once the investigation uh, is done, the charge sheet is filed before uh, the court. Charges are framed. You know, only then the trial starts. So ultimately what happens is that you merely become the witness. If the police refuse to file your FIR, then you can go up to the senior uh, officer, okay, or to the DCP. And if the police don't file at all, you can also approach the court, okay, the magistrate, and say that, okay, I want to file this complaint and the police are not filing. The court will look at it and then either uh, direct the police uh, to file. See, whenever you ask about divorce, uh, we need to understand that, um, as I said, we're governed by different religion and different uh, co uh, law applies to different communities, okay? Now, the understanding for Muslim women is that a lot of uh, people believe that under the Muslim law there is only the concept of talaq, okay, or kula, or uh, fast, which is within the community itself. But we must remember that Muslim women were one of the first women to actually get a right to divorce. So if the husband does not give you a talaq, okay, the women can actually file for a divorce in the family court. Okay, on pretty much the same grounds as any other uh, uh, woman and maybe a few more okay, under the Dissolution of Muslim Marriages uh, Act. So uh, it's, it's very uh, important to understand that because a lot of Muslim women think that they're only governed within their um, community. Okay, and two is that regarding... Um, so a lot of times we also see that you know, women come to us and say that the man has given us a triple talaq. Okay, in one sitting that you immediately just said talaq, talaq, talaq. Now the Supreme Court last year gave um, a judgment which said that instantaneous triple talaq 
is not valid, which means in one sitting or by fax or by courier or by uh, SMS or WhatsApp, talaq cannot be given. Okay, uh, Sharia lays down certain procedure for talaq, which is that, for example, you have to have a valid uh, ground, you should have mediation between the two uh, families, the terms have to be sorted out. Mm. Uh, the meher has to be returned, the maintenance for the iddat period has to be uh, worked out. It's only when all this process is followed, okay, and over a period of uh, three menstrual cycles, uh, etc., when the talaq is given, will the talaq be valid. Okay, if all this process is not followed, merely by sending a legal notice of talaq by a lawyer, or by a Qazi, who also happens to uh, be a lawyer, and you see, he says that in my presence, it is not valid at all. Okay, it has to be done properly and as per uh, Sharia. So instantaneous triple talaq is not valid under the, uh, 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 in India anymore. Also that uh, women very rarely know that they too can file for a divorce. And that grounds of uh, cruelty, non-maintenance, etc., is also a ground of uh, divorce for them, and they can go to uh, the family court or the district court uh, for it. And considering that triple talaq has been passed, there was a lot of talk within the Muslim community of um, what precedent this sets and whether the court or whether the government will have a say in Sharia going forth. And that was the main opposition to it, that why should the government uh, interfere with Sharia, for example? So uh, is there any connection, any bearing, or does the triple talaq verdict like going forward, will that have an impact? See, whenever you talk of personal law, okay, whether it is Hindus, Muslims, or uh, Christian, I think all, uh, I mean, looking at it from a point of view of women, religion per se controls women. There are very few uh, provisions in religion, whatever, that are um, pro-women uh, to that extent. And uh, religion is also uh, implemented and supervised by men. Okay, religion in a way um, works towards maintaining that patriarchy. Okay, so therefore all religion, whether it is Muslim, Christians or Hindus, want to control and keep that dominance over it and they don't want state intervention. Though under the Indian constitution and article 44 we say that we must strive to have a uniform uh, civil code. The resistance has come not merely from Muslim or uh, Christian communities. Even the Hindu women, Hindu sorry, Hindu men, were not willing to give property rights to uh, uh, their daughters. It was only in 2005, I think, that the Hindu Succession Act was amended all over the country where all the, uh, uh, the daughters got equal right to property as um, the sons, okay? Like even, for example, now when we see the Shabrimala uh, incident where women are not being allowed to enter despite the order of the court. Similarly, even uh, the Muslim women had filed a petition for, to enter the Haji Ali Darga in, uh, in uh, Bombay, which went up to the Supreme Court again. The women won in the Bombay High Court. It went up to the uh, Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, the Haji Ali Darga, the Vakpur actually withdrew their appeal and said, okay, we give in to the, uh, uh, to the order of the Delhi, um, I mean of the Bombay High Court. But that's not happening in the Shabri Mullah. They're still fighting 
for example if you if we are going to talk about a uniform civil code in 2018 we will be talking about matrimonial property which where we will say that women must have a right to matrimonial property and i want to know how many hindu men will support it so the minute you talk about certain rights for women this very modern positioning in each of the communities will automatically change because no one wants to give right uh, to uh, to the women so under the, in in india the muslims have a right to be governed by the sharia itself okay but what is most supreme in the country is the constitution so any practice under any religious uh, uh, whatever like it could be sati it could be dowry female genital uh, mutilation etc the general principle is that no practice that goes contrary to the constitution can prevail okay and it can't be a defense saying that no this is how it is uh, within our religion this episode was originally meant to end here but a few days ago i spoke with deepika bharadwaj a documentary filmmaker in delhi who's made martyrs of marriage it's currently on netflix the film looks at multiple families who have been affected by false accusations of section 498a of the indian penal code which is the law pertaining to subjecting a married woman to cruelty and i knew i had to include it i hope you watch the film but now we'll hear from deepika hi deepika thanks so much for speaking with me can you introduce yourself please Hi Aisha it's good to it's good to be on your podcast my name is Deepika Narayan Bhardwaj I identify myself as an independent journalist and a documentary filmmaker uh, for the last uh, couple of years my focus uh, in terms of my journalistic work has uh, focused on issues faced by men uh, particularly false accusations under uh, crime against women charges in India Uh, I've produced uh, a documentary, produced and directed a documentary called Martyrs of Marriage, which is right now on Netflix. It basically unravels the whole um, issue of abuse of dowry laws in India, which has been commented upon uh, several times by the uh, by almost all the high courts and Supreme Court as well in India. Uh, and uh, I continue to do this work every day. Why did you want to make Martyrs of Marriage? Something really really sad happened which I never expected would happen in my life where I personally experienced how false accusations of dowry are made on a family I was also uh, falsely accused eventually not charged of uh, you know beating up uh, my uh, uh, sister-in-law and demanding dowry and uh, you know everything written so nasty which was absolutely plain lies when i read those things i was of course very disheartened because i have until then and even now i've been a person who's been very sensitive to uh, anything wrong being done to women i have raised my voice i have stood up against people i have taken fights in public so when you get such accusations by somebody who's very close to you which are absolutely uh, false you feel really bad but when i started talking to people and telling them this is what is happening uh, people told me well this is happening very often this is happening um, you know all the time with so many people uh, but unfortunately uh, there is very little help or there is very little that you could do or we could do for you uh, i reached out to my journalist friends i reached to my reached out to you know people in the media who were at very good positions and they were like you know um, women matter we wouldn't really want to intervene we understand you must be very absolutely innocent and you would have a lot of evidences but media doesn't tell these stories and you're not going to get anything out of telling your story as well 
Then I started speaking to lawyers. I got to hear the same thing again and again. And this is happening very often. This is happening with a lot of people. And uh, this has become a tool of extortion uh, where false charges are made on you. And then a lot of amount of uh, money is demanded from you. And uh, I was, of course, uh, taken aback. I used to think that if, you know, the police, if you uh, end up being in a police station and then if you're honest or if you end up being in courts and if you're innocent, you would be heard and believed and listened to. But all of these uh, uh, beliefs basically got shattered. And then I started researching more on this and I started meeting people who were going through similar situations and then I realized that this is a very uh, serious problem. And uh, I'd, I'd made a few documentaries before. Uh, but they were all short documentaries um, and um, I had done a commission project for uh, uh, USAID as well. In fact, the film Before Martyrs of Marriage was on Domestic Violence Act and how women are victims of domestic violence. I had made it uh, on a project that was run by USAID and Counterpart International. At that time, I, it, it never occurred in my mind that there is another side of it as well. So I re started researching uh, how I could contribute to making more people aware about this problem. Uh, though there was already a lot of awareness, uh, several um, judgments, landmark judgments had been passed by Supreme Court and High Courts. Uh, but I realized that there had never been a film, a proper film made on this subject. And uh, being a documentary filmmaker, I know documentaries have a huge impact. They reach out to uh, a lot of people and they can be a tool of uh, awareness and guidance and support and, as well. It is definitely a side of um, crime that you don't hear often about. Um, if I it's could just not even considered a crime, actually, that's that's the whole problem. Right. <laughs> it's not even considered a crime. You know, false accusations are taken very lightly in India. I wish it was taken like any other crime. So the entire duration of making Martyrs of Marriage was four years, from 2012 to, in fact, October 2012 is when I started eventually shooting my first uh, uh, rushes in. Uh, October 2016 is when the uh, film released. Uh, uh, about going out and finding case studies, I visited police stations, I visited courts, I reached out to men's rights activists. Slowly and steadily, a lot of people on their own who were implicated in such cases started reaching out to me as well. So the cases are a combination of cases picked up uh, either from the police stations or, or from uh, media reports or from uh, men's rights organizations or people who reached out to me on a personal level. One of the cases uh, um, that that is there in the documentary, uh, which is a suicide case of Manoj Kumar, uh, this happened while I was on journey, my journey to shoot another case in Hyderabad, uh, which I had decided to include in the documentary. And uh, it, while I was in the train, I came to know about this suicide in Bangalore, and we just immediately shifted our uh, entire schedule and landed up in Bangalore to cover this case. The suicide had just happened and the person had left a very hard tension suicide note and it was because of threats, similar threats that were leveled to him and he decided to end his life. So a lot of cases that you would see in the film are also something that I have picked up on the go while I was making the film uh, because these cases would get reported each and every day and I thought uh, Telling the stories which are absolutely immediate would, um, I think, bring more of the uh, essence of what a person goes through when they uh, get into a situation like that.
Even in terms of the suicide notes, because there, there are quite a few featured in the documentary, what was it like uh, getting the families to share something so private and personal? Were they forthcoming or uh, was, was there a little bit of back and forth with that? The only uh, hesitation that I faced from people was in the beginning, uh, in terms of sharing their stories, uh, because they did not know who I was, they did not know what my intention was. Families who have been uh, in the film, they opened up to me like a family member. What has been um, the most extreme or the most notable, either good or bad, reactions that you've received? There have been several goods and bads. And I would uh, not hesitate to say that the goods are far, 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 far more than the bads. Bad um, was, uh, I would say, something that always sticks in my mind, which is, uh, which hurt me to the core and it took me quite some time to actually understand what did I do to receive something like this was um, uh, way back in... Uh, um, I think when the Sarjeet Singh and the Jasleen Kaur case happened and I was on the Times Now debate with Arna Swami and Jasleen Kaur was sitting over there and for the mere fact that I mentioned that Jasleen and she was in the studio, uh, I was not in the studio, I was uh, uh, live from my home and the only thing that I said is Jasleen, I have heard you but to be very honest it is something that has happened on a in a very crowded place and I just want to hear the other side of the story. I want to hear what Sarjeet Singh has to say and if we are telling people that something happened, I think uh, it is legitimate that we have both sides being heard and telling their stories for people to form an opinion if we are doing a trial, you know, a social media trial because that's how trials happen in the court of law. You hear both the sides, right? You just do not uh, adjudicate anything hearing only one side. And Aisha, that the hell just broke loose. It was the first day of the story breaking. And uh, and there were women who were uh, calling me rape apologists. And there were women who were telling she's a pimp for rapists. She would provide girls to rapists. And, uh, and un unbelievable things written about me on Twitter. So that's something that always, you know, stands out as an experience. Good, uh, unending goods. Uh, on a daily basis, I receive messages. And whenever people reach out to me, they write their first lines usually are, thank you for all that you're doing. And this includes both men and women. Just day before yesterday night, my night ended with a lady crying in front of me who's been fighting for her brother and she's like the pick up people like you give us hope so thank you so much for whatever you for doing whatever you're doing there are several cases um, you know dowry cases that are filed that are genuine cases do you at any point think and i completely understand you saying um, that you need to tell the other side of the story because only then is it balanced and i i completely get that but do you feel that for the number of uh, genuine cases that women file does a, a documentary like this do a disservice to them in some way? No, I don't really think so at all. Female judges of high courts, because I had traveled to various cities and one thing that I ensured was to invite judges of high courts and session courts to the screening of the documentary. Uh, one of the very, very respectable and honorable judges of the, Supreme, uh, sorry, of the high court of Bombay is somebody who told me that 
the kind of abuse this section has faced, it is only legitimate to scrap it down. We are just, I, I've been in practice for so long and I just get so irritated, irritated seeing what happens in my courts. I'm not saying that women who go through this do not need justice, they need justice, but if a law is open to abuse so ridiculously, I think it fails its own purpose. I was like, ma'am, of course you can't say this in open. And she said, yeah, of course we can't say this in open, but we feel it every day. And the other female judges that I've met in several courts who have said the same thing to me. It is women who file these false cases who are doing a great disservice to women who genuinely go through this. How can you lie about something which is seen so seriously by the society and which has, of course, very serious legal repercussions also? I don't think we need to hide these stories. I think we need to tell these stories more because um, I think justice is a constitutional right to every individual, whether man or a woman. And I think if we don't tell these stories, we would only be lying to ourselves. Is there an, any additional larger goal or message that you want to achieve through the work that you're doing? And how close do you feel like you are to what you want to achieve? I, I think uh, uh, I the larger goal is to, of course, have uh, uh, a larger awareness in the society. As a filmmaker, as a storyteller, that's all that basically is in your, you know, uh, uh, I would say possibilities, area of possibilities. I think awareness is the key to change. Predominantly, what I feel with something which can actually uh, sort of uh, address the situation is to have uh, serious laws for perjury uh, and it not being treated as a joke the way it is right now in India. Second thing, which is very important, I guess, Aisha, is to have our compensation schemes uh, 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 amended. I'm talking about a structured compensation scheme if a person has been falsely accused and tried by the police and the courts and the person is innocent and eventually the courts do adjudicate that the person is absolutely innocent and wrongly implicated. I'm not talking about acquittals because of lack of evidence. I'm talking about acquittals where the person is honorably acquitted saying he was falsely implicated. There is absolutely no understanding of the trauma and harassment that a person goes through because of false accusations. And what are you of the opinion? Do you think that the law should be amended or that it should be scrapped altogether? I don't think it is about a law uh, or 498A or any other law as such. I think it's more about, uh, it's to do more about uh, uh, having a very foolproof mechanism so that people can't abuse it. So it's not just about 498A. As regards to 498A, I think the definition is, uh, definition has a problem. Um, it is, it's, it's very wide ambited uh, and people have so many loopholes to abuse it. Uh, one thing that definitely needs to happen with 498 is that uh, the, uh, the definition of the law that any family member can be implicated, that needs to be done away with for sure because it gives people um, uh, a way to implicate all the family members since it's the definition of the law. Uh, I think domestic uh, disputes need to remain between the family members who live together and not somebody who's living thousand miles away just because they happen to be a family member. Uh, this is a this is a very confusing situation for me personally. Whether I want to say the 498 should go or 490 it should be completely scrapped or it should be amended. Personally, honestly, I would want women who are victims of domestic violence and dowry abuse to get justice uh, through criminal legislation. 
but the abuse of 498 is such that I think it has failed its purpose. Um, uh, I, I just want that people who are falsely implicated get justice.